Actuarial Society STIC and chairs the Professional Guidance Subcommittee tasked with practicing certificates and professional actuarial guidance. Yauke and his team have conducted a survey on the above-mentioned topic across the South African insurance industry, covering both life and non-life insurers and reinsurers. Yaku will share the results of their survey with us, after which he will lead a panel discussion with our panel members on stage. We thus welcome our esteemed panelists who bring highly experienced actuarial and risk perspectives from some of the leading and largest insurers and industry players on the continent. We welcome Jan Lab, Edward Paul, David Jewell, Andy Rayner, and Wayne Savage. Thank you very much, Yaku. Thank you, Sajiv, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, let me just get my technology aligned. There we go. Right, so when we started this discussion, it was framed by my background as someone who consults to the insurance industry, deals with a number of insurers, and in my own professional career, has seen, I've seen an evolution of my role from the traditional actuarial stuff into a more risk management type role largely driven by the introduction of SAM. Um, and in doing so, I realized that the, the, the role and my contribution to the profession was really shifting from one as a traditional actuary to someone who was being called more and more to support my clients in the risk management space. Um, and as I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, we, we would like to actually understand whether my perception as a consultant and that of my colleagues is mirrored by the rest of the industry, that of my clients, and just generally the risk management in the insurance world in particular. Sure. Okay, I'm ahead of myself there. Um, and so we undertook a survey. Um, we, we spoke with insurers across the industry. Um, and we found, uh, we sought to find information that verified our experience of this trend. Now, the evolution of the actuarial role has started a long time ago with the, with the role of the actuary growing at, the, at insurers uh, more and more, um, largely driven by things like the reintroduction of the statutory actuary role, um, something that the life insurers has, have had for a long time, um, whereas us on the short-term insurance side, you know, I speak from a, a short-term insurance perspective, haven't had that much experience of it. It's a relatively immature role in our, in our world. Um, but mo more recently, driven by the introduction of risk-type frameworks like Basel, King, SAM, um, and Solvency II, um, most recently that has culminated, at least for us in, as the actuaries, in the introduction of this role called the Head of Actuarial Control. And looking at that role, we found that there was some interesting interplay between the hack role and the risk management control function, both uh, which seemed to sort of compete and complement at the same time. So we undertook a survey, and I'm going to share the results of that survey with you before we actually start asking some of our panelists about that. But in particular, we wanted to understand the role to which actuaries were involved in this risk management space. Um, we wanted to understand whether we were really ready for this as, uh, as actuaries, could we fulfill this role? Um, is the hack role well-defined? Is it an effective role? Does it complement the risk management role? Um, and is there potentially some overlap between those roles? And then lastly, what are some of the challenges that we actually face in this sort of second pillar uh, implementation of SAM? 
Uh, and are we really, you know, is, is our, are our frameworks and our skill sets really mature enough to cope with what's ideally required? So we interviewed, uh, we had surveys with 31 distinct insurance uh, entities uh, or licenses, um, of which we, when we looked at the size splits of those, uh, it was originally sort of a half-half between the, the three billion revenue line mark, but a few late submissions sort of shifted that balance a bit. So about uh, two-thirds of it have premium or revenue levels over three billion. Um, you can see by count the number of uh, uh, participants was more weighted towards the non-life insurers, but when you put the life and the group uh, groups together who were a little bit more dominated by life, it's sort of an even split between life and non-life. Um, the majority of these which were direct writers, we did have reinsurance input as well as some cell captive input. So for the purpose of the survey, a fairly good uh, spread. We then started asking the participants about the roles of the actuaries in their business, and specifically, where do the actuaries get involved in risk management? And you can see that approximately 12% of, uh, of the time, the actuaries are actually involved in risk management roles, and you can see the distribution is pretty much uh, weighted towards the large insurers, as you would inspect, uh, expect. Um, in terms of outsourcing, so, so where um, the company didn't have its own internal actuaries, the large ones all would outsource this sort of actuarial risk management role. The smaller ones, far less so. And in terms of the actuaries who are part of risk teams, you can see it was uh, far more weighted towards uh, sort of group insurers where the complexity and the scale of the businesses um, sort of supported the need for that kind of actuarial involvement in those risk management teams. Then we asked, okay, Given that level of involvement of the actuaries in the business, is there perhaps an issue with shortages of actuaries? Is there, are there sufficient resources? And this is also largely informed by questions that I get personally a lot from my clients who are struggling to find um, actuaries to fulfill risk management roles. Interestingly, very few people said there was, well, no one said there was like a major uh, shortage or a clear um, kind of uh, over-resourced situation in terms of actuaries for these roles. Um, however, um, there was a, a fairly large number of uh, participants who felt there was at least some degree of shortage around the actuarial skills for risk management. We then asked them a little bit, okay, so if you're not using actuaries, why, why you know, are you not using actuaries to help out with risk management roles? Um, is it perhaps that they don't have the right skills or training? I'm sorry, my slides keep forwarding by themselves. I'm not sure if I have... <laughs> This is not what it's supposed to be doing. I'm not touching the clicker. Um, and luckily the answers were no. So it's not a case of them not having skills or training. Secondly, uh, is it that you just struggle to find the, the right actuaries for these roles? Are they that scarce? And it seemed to be a, a bit of a, a yes to that question. Uh, when we got to the question of is it perhaps a cost issue, as we know actuaries are not always the cheapest of resources, uh, there was a clear vote of yes for that, so it seems that actuaries potentially are, you know, fulfilling roles for which they are maybe more expensive than equivalent resources. Um, followed by lastly, so do they actually add value? And I guess I'd be interested to hear some of my panel uh, members' views on this. Does having an actuary in the CRO role actually really make any difference? So one of the comments that one of the participants in the survey said is that they felt the actuaries were actually better suited to assess and quantify 
and I mean this is something we see in the authors as well, there's a big role on the quantification side, but they felt that the actuaries often lacked the strategic and commercial thinking that you need for this sort of role. So for me that was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting comment. Right, so the question then led to, okay, well, what are the actuaries doing in these risk management roles for you? And we looked at things like risk indicators, tracking them, developing them, the same for risk policies and risk appetite. Um, and generally you could say that in most cases the actuaries have a strong role in developing and as well as implementing these areas. Um, however, um, there's... I'm not touching this liquor. There we go. Um, a, a much lesser degree of involvement when it comes to maintenance of these metrics. So I guess it supports our experience as well of where, you know, with SAM and Solvency 2 being introduced, the actuaries were largely responsible for kind of getting these things up and running at the insurers. And now that the development's in place, it's a case of maintaining. Interestingly for the author, at least... Um, the actuaries seem to be fairly involved with the also process, um, not really so much with the drafting reports, thank goodness, but more in terms of ownership key elements. Um, in, I guess in the cases where the, where the CRO is the actuary, ownership of the, of the report is a key thing. Um, yeah, so the participants also felt that actuaries have a good training and skill set from which do like some of the more complex quantification of metrics. The question is, are they able to actually explain that to their audience? Well, well. We'll have to see about that. Secondly, ERM frameworks, risk taxonomy, strategy, and register, sort of the more softer aspects, as I like to view it, of sort of the ERM space. The actuaries, again, they have a role with implementing it and getting it into place. Uh, but interestingly, with something like a risk register, which pretty much all insurers that I've dealt with, even before SAM, I mean, all of them have risk registers. Not all of them necessarily had strategies and taxonomies and frameworks necessarily well-defined, so it makes sense that the actuaries got a bit more involved there, uh, but when it comes to things like risk registers, there's, there's a, maybe a more of a maintenance role than a sort of a development role. So I guess we're saying we've brought something new, but it, we mustn't fool ourselves in thinking that we've all this, these you know, ERM concepts that we're introducing through SAM is necessarily new to the insurance world. Um, okay, so then we looked a little bit at what are the kind of key decisions that the actuarial involvement is driving, where, what sort of key decisions are we making, um, and where they are doing risk management type of uh, work and roles, what else are they doing in addition to that? Because there's a sort of a feedback to be received that it's not really enough just for an actuary to do risk management. He's got to add some value as well outside of that. Um, and in terms of key decisions, as you would expect, and as I think we've also seen in some surveys we've done both in Europe and in South Africa over the last few years, things like capital management, reinsurance, setting ALM investment strategies, and doing pricing and underwriting strategies is sort of the natural area where the, the actuary applies his mind in the risk space. Um, interestingly, the operational risk quantification is one I think that is a little bit newer in, in, in this context, and it's something I think is going to grow as we sort of, as the water's steady and, and the ability for the actuary to kind of apply himself a bit further than the traditional areas is going to grow. I think there's still a bit of work that we can do in actually quantifying things like operational risk. But risk management isn't the only thing that the, um, the actuary in the CRO does. Um, there's 
quite a lot of um, additional work that gets done on things like capital modeling and reserving, sort of the traditional corporate areas, less so on the more commercial pricing and product design. Um, and then finally, something that was interesting for me is systems implementation. So I think making sure that you get the right people involved in terms of designing and implementing your systems is obviously strategically very important. Um, and it's interesting that about a third of the time that is something that the, 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 the risk actuaries get involved with. So the big question, actuaries as CROs, are they better or worse? And you'll notice we have five panelists, uh, four of which are CROs, not all of which are actuaries. So uh, I guess whoever has the strongest voice or the biggest biceps will answer this question. Of the CROs that we spoke to, 24% of them were actuaries, so about a quarter. And these individuals had on average been performing this role. So not, not to say that these are actuaries with 5.7 years, years of working experience. They've been fulfilling CRO roles as actuaries on average for about just under six years. Um, and for those actuaries, the, the vast majority of them are with the larger, more complex insurers, as you would expect. Um, it's interesting for me, though, because I think when you start combining CRO and maybe an, and the chief actuary or a hack role, I would think it's the, the small insurers where the, the concept of scale and proportionality is more important, where you would probably see more of that being combined. And what do these CRO actuaries do? Well, uh, when it comes, you know, we've spoken about what they do, but actually, I suppose the question is, do they add value or are they better or worse off in this role? When it comes to things like risk policies, um, risk strategy and risk appetite, thankfully there were very, very few responses that said they were worse off by having an actuary in that role. Um, I guess there were, there's a fairly even spread between saying, well, there's a moderate degree of benefit that it adds or a significant amount. Um, but actually, in some cases, a fairly high proportion of respondents felt it didn't necessarily make that much difference, specifically on something like risk policies. And I think it goes to figure, you know, do you really need an actuary to draft a risk policy? It makes more sense to me that an actuary gets involved on development of risk appetite where there's an element of quantification and modeling that goes into setting and designing an appropriate metric. Similarly, when we looked at things like the RM framework, key risk indicator tracking, operational risk quantification, and risk registers, uh, there was, in these cases, I guess, a much larger proportion of respondents who felt that the actuary didn't really make that much of a difference. Um, and again, it makes sense, especially on something like a risk register, which insurers have pretty much always had. Uh, perhaps something like quantification of operational risk is self-explanatory that, you know, it requires an element of modeling or sort of different thinking. And I think that it's clear that having an actuarial skill set is valuable there. So then when I started this, the presentation, I said that we were also going to talk about the role of the hack because it's one of the key control functions under SAM. And the more we get sort of pulled into delivering hack work or providing hack roles, we find ourselves, um, you know, integrating with internal audits, other control functions, but specifically with a risk management role. Um, and the hack as a function that really supports what the, the head of risk does um, clearly has a lot of interesting interplay there. So um, overall, just under two-thirds or just over half of the insurers have formalized hack roles. 
um, obviously the larger ones more so. The life insurers are far ahead in this space. I think it makes sense given that they're coming from an existing statutory actuary background. The transition into HAC is, is, is a much more natural one. For us as the non-life or short-term insurers, it's a, it's a bit of a foreign, unusual concept. Plus, it was not actually an explicit requirement of board notice 158. Uh, you, you, you all have views on to whether that was a good thing or not, but uh, that has resulted in the distribution that we see now. Um, in terms of outsourcing the role, it's about a 50-50 split, um, whether it's internal or external. Um, and then we asked the insurers, so when you are fulfilling this hack role, are you looking to meet the, the minimum requirements that we expect to see through the role of the hack? That's, or are you actually looking to go over and beyond that? And interestingly, uh, sort of a half-half split, um, but just over half of them felt that they wanted to scope out the role beyond what was basic minimum regulatory compliance. Okay, very interesting slide for me, this. And this is a touchy subject that I see many uh, people talking about is overlap. And overlap has a negative connotation to it. I guess we're talking here about the fact that work gets duplicated, costs are duplicated, um, and inefficiencies potentially arise. Overlap, I mean, there could be an element of synergy, but the, the, the feeling we got it was a negative connotation. Actuarial and risk management. Clearly, Today's talk's all about this, but that's the biggest area. 91% of respondents felt there was overlap in that space. Um, interestingly for us, risk management and compliance, we see some of the insurers combining those roles in terms of responsibility. It makes sense, but I mean, really, if you think about it, compliance and risk management or head of risk, they're fundamentally quite different roles. So I, I would be interested to see how that stacks up, you know, what the split was across sort of complex versus simple organizations there. Um, Wait, slow down. Um, then when we looked at actuarial and compliance, I highlight that one, Even it's 14, it's not that big, but for me it was a bit surprising and in, in a way I question why would there be an overlap between actuarial and compliance, thinking about what a com compliance role really is. Uh, I, I was surprised at that one, um, as, as I was, um, well, I wasn't surprised, but I wasn't surprised to see that uh, respondents felt that there was a lot of overlap between the audit roles. Okay, so both internal and external audits. Um, as someone who stands uh, fairly often on the external side of the fence, external audit side of the fence, less so on the internal audit side of the fence, but often on the hack role, I can see it, there, there is scope for that. You know, you've got hacks who provide second line oversights who do sign off of what the first line does, and then in addition there's another layer of defense in the form of the external auditors and perhaps even in terms of the internal auditors who repeat that work, but where, where do you pitch it so that the overlap isn't problematic and it doesn't drive up costs unnecessarily? And I mean, how much oversight and confidence and defense do you really need there? Right. We asked respondents a little bit about education, and I guess here the education was probably more answered by the actuarial uh, respondents, but the CERA course, so ST9 and, and what that does do you feel that it's appropriate, does it prepare us appropriately to, appropriately to perform the CRO role? And the majority of respondents said yes. Um, some of the comments that we received said that the course was generic but good and laid a good foundation. So I guess all in all sounds good. Um, is there a sufficient professional actuarial guidance for this role? I expected the answer to be an overwhelming no, given that it's different to what we've done in the past. Surprisingly, 
70% of respondents felt that it was. And if you look at the comments, perhaps more from the life side, they felt that the existing guidance already contained a lot of these risk management principles and elements in it, and it re really just needed a bit of tweaking and rewording. So, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, I was a little bit surprised at that, but I suppose that uh, highlights my own non-life actuarial background where we have a far uh, smaller number of professional guidance notes as we're sort of working to get them in place still. So, I would expect that's more of a life insurance perspective. Okay. So, in summary, before I go over to our panel members, um, so the skills are in some cases critical, in some cases superfluous. Um, there are key areas where the actual skills add value. Within the ORSA, within the risk appetite and the key risk indicators, it seems that our ability to translate complex quantitative metrics and do modeling is, is particularly valuable. Um, but there is actually still a shortage of actuaries to step into this role and support. Um, it also there are also challenges in this to the extent that the different control functions overlap, duplicate, drive up costs, and we got a bit of a negative sentiment around that from the industry. Um, and, and then on the question of whether the CRO is better or worse off as an actuary, not necessarily a very clear consensus. We'll wait for the, the arm wrestling match, but uh, there are certain roles where perhaps the actuarial skill set gives us an edge, maybe the, again the more analytical roles. And then lastly, in terms of education, technical support, guidelines, not too bad, could do with a little bit more uh, professional guidance. Okay, so with that in mind, I'd like to go over to our panel members. Um, they've been introduced to you already briefly, but just from the left, just again, so we've got Jan Libbe, oh, starting on the left here, Jan Libbe, David Jewell, Wayne Savage, Edward Paul, and Andy Rayner. So you'll see that four of our panelists are chief risk officers themselves. Um, and we have two non-actuaries on the panel, which we're very grateful for. Some, some personality and spice has been added there. Um, it's in the form of Wayne, who's as a partner with Deloitte, and Jan Libber, who's uh, the CRO at MMI. Um, so, given what I've just said, gentlemen, and, and given uh, the comments about actuaries adding value, not adding value, Perhaps let me start with uh, Jan, so our first um, person on the left here. So, Jan, as a non-actuary and someone who actually encounters and deals with actuaries on a regular basis, on a daily basis throughout your group, do you, would you say that the, uh, the actuarial profession or the actuaries in your business have specifically added value and bring something new to the table that you think wouldn't have been there otherwise? Thanks, Yaku, and um, I, I won't take that non-actuary uh, label as a micro-aggression. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll put it down to an unconscious bias. Um, but thank you very much. So uh, I suppose there's, a, there's the, the normal answer to the question, obviously in the technical and quantitative space, uh, areas where we've got uh, very complex problems and they do add value. Um, if, if I can talk about where, where I've seen specific actuaries add a lot of value in the risk management space, and what I believe is, is very important for that, um, you know, when, when I think there's a good risk manager, and whether you're actuary or not, uh, you need to be passionate, 
doesn't need to be about Brian red wine, but passionate about risk management and, and solving things and thinking about the future. You need to be inquisitive and ask why, why, and why, you know, the whole time. And then you obviously also need to have a healthy dose of cynicism with, with some humor. Um, I think the, the actories that's got those um, characteristics um, add a lot of value. And, and I want to uh, mention a, a couple of, of things there, specifically when an actuary can explain uh, a complex problem uh, in simple language. Uh, I think you know, it's a lot easier to then get buy-in for whatever needs to happen. Secondly, um, and this is maybe where, and this is maybe my unconscious bias, uh, where some actuaries seem to be a, a little bit um, reserved, is to give an opinion without, I wouldn't say perfect information, but what everyone believes sufficient information. You know, we don't live in a world where uh, we have always sufficient information, and, and sometimes we do rely on, on opinion as well. And then clearly, um, you know, when there can be practical advice uh, about management actions, things that we can do better. Um, and, and I think where the actuaries where I've seen a lot of value specifically, and, and also why, you know, when you mentioned the overlap between actu actuarial and risk management, so not just because risk management is the pinnacle of human achievement, but um, because I do think <laughs> the principles be between the actuarial thinking and, and proper good risk management thinking are actually quite similar. It should be longer term in nature. It should be inquisitive. It should be finding a thing, um, asking why, why, why again. Uh, it should be adapting. It should be improving. Um, so really to, to provide that practical uh, implementation of something that will, will, will make the world better for, for the business, I think, is, is very important. So the, the long answer, that was the long answer. The short answer is obviously, certainly. Otherwise, I'm sure you wouldn't have invited me. Uh, but the, the actuaries uh, really play a very, very important role in, in risk management at MMI. Thank you, Jan. I should probably just declare my independence. I know Jan did make me explicitly aware before the panel that he enjoyed Brian. And I see he's dropped another subtle hint about red wine as well. So I'm sure we can, we can get some favorable responses here. Yeah. So um, I mean, listening to what you're saying about you know, practical experience being passionate, I think one area of practical experience is, comes from the banking world. So I mean, Jan, that's an area where you also have, I mean, if you look at your CV, you actually have hands-on experience in the banking environment. And we also have another member on our panel, Edward, who's currently with a, a large banking group. And I'd be curious actually to know whether that form of practical experience has changed your perspective, Jan and Edward, on risk management and the role of the actuary there, given what we've got, you know, learnings from Basel, banking environments. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what your take is on that. Maybe I'll start briefly and then it can, can continue. Um, you know, I joined MMI four years ago after quite a, a long time in the dark side of banking. Um, and and I, I really enjoy the industry. I mean, I'm still learning a lot. It is actually vastly different. Um, and I know someone like Andy obviously has got all the skills to do both um, soon in terms of banking and insurance. Um, I think the, the one thing that I've learned from the insurance side is the longer term thinking maybe. 
Um, I think in the banking space, actuaries have started to play an exceptionally important role in um, specifically credit risk, not only retail, but also wholesale credit risk, not just the capital modeling, um, but really in, in the frontline roles as well. And then clearly as well, capital management. And I think um, uh, the capital management piece, uh, you mentioned it in your survey as well. I think that's where actuaries add a lot of value uh, in, the, in the insurance space. Um, maybe one thing to mention between the two industries, Basel started obviously a, a while before the, the SAM regulations, and I do think one thing that the the regulator um, in the FSB got, got right is really to make sure that the OSHA process is really part of business as usual. It's not something separate. Uh, where in the banking world, probably when it started, you know, it was more driven by a, a compliance or regulatory mindset. Uh, and, and, but I do think that that was a good start, clearly, and, and that has evolved a lot. I do think that just because of the timing that there's a difference between the, the banking and insurance side. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks, Yaku and Jan. Um, maybe just to start off with where Jan ended on the ORSA and the ICAP, which is an interesting uh, common area in banks and insurers. Um, so that's probably one of the areas where, coming from an insurance perspective, we've been able to add a lot of value. And having been on a journey with our board, who uh, contains a whole number of bank board members as well, it's actually been quite enlightening and interesting to see how they've journeyed with us in understanding the role of the ORSA as opposed to the, the banking ICAP. So the ICAP report is a, certainly a magnum opus, um, huge collection of very static information, uh, whereas we try to transition them and our board into a world of using this ORSA as a very live and embedded uh, process in the organization. And they, they've actually come to enjoy that uh, quite a lot, so much so that Whenever we get a new board member, we hand them the ORSA report as one of the most effective ways of induction into the business. So I think that's where we've been able to build on um, and uh, set ourselves aside a little bit to a part. I think just in the banking context, what I enjoyed in coming into the banking world from the insurance world is just the, the formality of the risk frameworks and environments. So you walk into a world where everything is very well defined and very formal. So you already have the frameworks and everything that you need as a foundation to, to do the job of a risk manager. But So you don't have to worry about all that. You can really focus on the things that, um, that complement the risk okay. function. Um, you know, one of them, and I'll stop with that, is what you probably had to endure yesterday in the meeting I had to chair where it's a models committee and it's really addressing the whole area of model risk which is a pretty new environment for, for actuaries to be in, mm. to be exposed to the risks in their models that they are introducing to the business. So that's where banking has been able to add value to the, to the value that I can then add in return to the insurer. Okay. That's very interesting. I mean, I, in particular, I found your comment about the, the practical usability of the ICAP versus the also very interesting and enlightening. It's not something that I actually personally was aware of. I mean, maybe you'd also be interested to hear Wayne's view on that. I mean, Wayne, you you work a lot with banks. You've worked a lot with insurers, bank insurers, groups. Um, you've dabbled yourself a little bit with the actuarial space. So you've got you've got a pretty good picture of everything. Um, as a consultant, we know everything anyway. But um, in your in your in your view, I mean, Wayne, what do you? Edward spoken a little bit about the learnings from Basel. 
you see us actually coming into this space now and you see what we're doing. I mean, what's your view of that? And kind of, are we, are we actually bringing the learners from Basel across properly in your, in your opinion? Do we have the, the right sort of background to do that? Yeah, so I, I think there's some positive comments to take from Basel and there are probably some negative or some sort of lessons learned that, that emanate from both Basel 2 and Basel 3. And the, the positive ones are probably echoing what, echo, uh, what, uh, what Edward had to say was around the governance and controls hmm. and specifically around the modeling environment where Basel really developed a strong focus on the governance and controls around model risk. They looked at the establishment of independent validation model units such that there could be greater reliance placed on these models. And I think that that concept of having this independent validation is probably something that will start to develop and we'll see more and more within the insurance sector as the models probably become more complex or as the, the numbers start to, to emerge. I think that's one of the areas. I think the, the other was the creation of established governance functions, be they audit, be they risk committees, and having very formalized objectives, agendas, in terms of reference. I think that's probably some of the stronger lessons learned. I think and it's on one of the, the other sort of topics for discussion today is around data. So Basel through its BCBS 239, the risk data and reporting aggregation, has really focused around data. You know, the concept of whatever you put in is what you're likely to get out is, is a very key concept and putting frameworks in place to govern your data is an area that I think is probably likely to be leveraged off within the insurance sector going forward, not just for modeling and measurement purposes, but for actually understanding the, the underlying drivers of risk and value within the organization and trying to standardize those. Then I think some of the areas where um, lessons from Basel can be learned and perhaps where Basel did not get it so right was really the embedding of the measurement um, pertaining to risk and capital. So the ability to embed it in my mind is almost as important as coming up with something that has numerical accuracy and relevance. Because unless you're actually going to have business looking at the number and understanding its relevance in terms of how it translates into the business model, you know, and what does it mean, you're very quickly going to establish a parallel process that you're affecting in the ORSA that is purely used for regulatory purposes. And I'm, I'm very glad to hear what Edward had to say about the ORSA forming part of you know, a dynamic business decision-making process. But I think banks, unfortunately, given the, the prioritization of the pillar one and quantitative calculations, did not focus sufficiently on pillar two. And the ICAP process became something that existed in parallel for a number of years. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of work has been done to remediate that and to integrate that into business and decision making. Um, then I think the, the next point is really the role of risk management. So, you know, we're speaking about the importance of the CRO and the CRO having a you know, a, a place at the table in terms of being able to deliver on value. Um, I think unfortunately within a, a number of large global banking organizations, the concept of risk and value was not really understood through Basel. And if you think of risk, it's just really the other side of the value coin, which means you really need to understand the value in the organization and then the commensurate risks. And I think that's one of the areas where I don't think Basel focused enough around understanding how the risk you know, actually arose out of the other side of the value equation. Um, and I think that's probably one of the areas where I think from a SAM perspective, if you're able to bring that lens to, to risk management, I think there's definitely an opportunity to learn off some of those lessons that Basel, that Basel did not get right mm -hmm. at the, at the mm -hmm. outset. That's interesting. You talk about the separation of you know, sort of governance structures, and I think I'd sort of take from that also 
control functions, you know, creating appropriate segregation of various functions and structures to create the, the necessary oversights and, 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 and kind of independence there. One that stands out and that keeps coming up a lot in the questions that the clients ask me is combining of those functions. Okay, so you're dealing with insurers who are large and I mean uh, everyone at the panel here has experience of fairly mature complex large organizations but I deal with some pretty small ones who actually cannot have uh, separate uh, functions in place uh, for all those control functions. The idea of combining the CRO and the hack role. What, I mean, what, what is your view on that? And I'm keen to hear what you think on that, on that one, Wayne, given what you've now seen, the sort of mistakes made in Basel. But I'd also like to hear that from, from Andy, because it's also something that I think that's particularly pertinent to you in your, in your business. So I, I think in, through the SAM process, a lot was said around the three lines of defense. So maybe just to, mm. just to provide clarity around the principles of the three lines of defense, because this is where this discussion starts to, to sort of have a bearing is. So line one really drives value through assuming risks and through maintaining adequate balance between risk and return. So there's a, there's a very important understanding of that. Line two is monitoring and oversight, and line three is your independent assurance. So if you look at the role that the CRO and HACC are effectively envisaged to do, they predominantly form that of a line two, okay? So it's the roles that would be providing monitoring and oversight. Um, I don't think there'd be any problems, you know, provided one can, can look at the roles that they're playing and that there's the fulfillment of the regulatory obligations mm -hmm. in terms of the head of the actual control function of merging those. I mean, this would, be, this would be one of those areas where you'd need to approach the regulator and ensure that they're comfortable that regarding that monitoring and oversight, they're fulfilling those. Mm -hmm. I think for a long time during the evolution of SAM, the head of the actual control function, th there was tainting around certain line one roles. I think yeah. when we look at the final standard and where it landed uh, in its draft format at the moment, I think it's quite clear that it, in my mind at least, an interpretation that it is a line two role. Mm. I think important to note this is that doesn't stop line two from providing inputs into, into line one decisions. And the point that I ended on, on the previous question around driving value and understanding risk and providing recommendation, recommendations to management as long as that line two is not actually taking the risk. I think mm. that's quite a key thing in my mind yeah. in terms of maintaining that healthy tension between one and two. I think that's a concept that really has to be well understood by all players in the industry but particularly those more challenged by the resource, resourcing constraints because there are ways of actually making it work. Um, I mean uh, Andy you've also, I mean you've, you've got your experience now within the discovery group, but you've also spent many years consulting to a wide range of uh, players, large and small. I mean, what? How do you see this? And Sorry, have I got it? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Echo. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, when I joined Discovery, it was very deliberate action to combine the role of the hack and the CRO, and I think that was based on discussions that I'd had with them and they'd had internally, just around the the nature of the risks in the business, and I think given the, the nature of our group, a lot of the, the risks that will kill you, if you look at those, they, they tend to have quite an actuarial flavor to them. So the feeling was that, um, you know, do you have a hack reporting to a CRO or a CRO reporting to the hack? There was so much overlap. Uh, the, the feeling was just to combine the role in, into one. And I think it works pretty well in, in a group like ours um, because of that overlap. There may be other groups where there's, there's less overlap. I guess if you are 
in a group that's dominated by a bank with a smaller insurer would be less of an issue. I don't think there'd be any any suggestion that you combine a hack and a CRO role there. Um, so I think it, it's horses for courses. Um, and I think, you know, I guess looking back on my experience in the last four years there, um, what it did mean is that I essentially sort of built two teams, a more traditional risk team, um, looking at the, the risk, you know, evaluation of risk, identification of risk, and all the, the, the dashboards and monitoring that goes around that. And then we built an actuarial team that looked at the actuarial side of things, combined with the statutory actuary function, that um, performed all the group-wide capital calculations and, and so on. And I think the expectation was that those teams would be almost seamless and would work really closely together. The reality is probably my fault as a leader, but the reality is it's quite, it has been harder to do that. I, I think that if I look at targets for myself, it would be trying to optimize that link between the more traditional risk skill set and the actuarial skill set. I think it can be done. I just think we haven't done it necessarily as well as we could do. So. Mm. Would you say the experience, you know, having come from the consulting side of the world and stepping into industry, you know, as you have, has it been different to what you expected? I mean, I know as a consultant myself, we've got lots of thought leadership and access to global standards and best practice, and we're sort of advocating and advising on you should do this, you should do that, this is best practice. But I mean, doing it yourself, is, is that, do you find it's more or less, I guess, mature than where the consultants imagine? YouTube, yeah, yeah. That's, that's an interesting question, Yaku. So I get you, you're kind of stepping on internal versus external um, fulfillment of the role. Um, and just thinking that through, I guess there's a few, I mean, Jan had a nice list earlier of the attributes of a, a chief risk officer. And I think there's a, not only the attributes of the person, but a few things that you have to do to execute the risk role well. I think number one would be access to data, information, issues, people, you know, it's, it's really getting under the skin of what are the current issues, what are the decisions that are being made in the business, what's the implication of those, um, what capital do they require, um, what reputational risk comes with that. Uh, and, you know, it's having those corridor discussions, it's being involved in the right excos, project meetings, uh, board meetings, getting the right exposure. So I, I personally think that's really hard to do when you're not inside a company. So I think the external fulfillment yeah. of that role is really tough. Yeah. Um, you kind of only know what you're told. Yeah. Um, and although there's ways, as you have, as people who do external audits in the audience or people who are external statutory actors, you have ways of getting that information, but there's always the risk that you only really know what you're told. Well, there's yeah. still that risk when you're inside the business, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, so I think, so internal versus external, I think from that aspect, you, you, okay. it's really hard to do it from an external point of okay. view. I think the other thing that you have to do is you have to have insight and perspective and experience and knowledge and, and, and good judgment. Mm -hmm. And I guess that doesn't really matter whether you're inside or outside to perform the role. You could do it equally. You could yeah. argue maybe as an external person, you might have access to more peers to discuss the things with and, and, and bounce ideas off other skill sets. Yeah. Um, I think the other um, attribute of doing the risk role well uh, is then resources. Um, so my team at Discovery, if I look at the actual risk people, the the traditional risk people, the first line, the second line, if you add that all together, it's probably 20 to 30 people across the group. Um, and that's a group looking at life on life, banking, international, all sorts of things. I don't know if you could really justify to a client charging them for 20 to 30 full-time people if you are doing it externally. I think that's going to be a tough call. So again, I think that falls on the side of internal risk role. Mm. And I think the last thing is then influencing. You need to be a really good influencer. 
to add value. Um, there could be an aura about an external consultant. I know some that have an aura. Um, and uh, uh, so that could play in your favor. But I think on the other hand, again, it's just having access to people and finding different ways of appealing to different people in the decision process and maybe sometimes planting the seed when you need to. So on balance, Jaco, I think it's, it's, it's probably more appropriate for a medium to large size firm that you internalize that risk role. Sorry, long answer to a question. That's, that's a very good, interesting, and you made a few points. You mentioned the word statutory actuary there along the way, and, and that's actually historically one role that has been outsourced for many years to a large extent. Um, and, you know, with that, I mean, David, I'd like to ask you as well. I mean, you've, you've got the background, you know, you understand the statutory actuary role. You have seen this transition into the new hack role, which is similar, but same, but not the same, and you are a CRO. Um, what is your view on that? Because, I mean, there's, there's an element of independence, external, external. There's a lot of things going on there. I mean, what's your experience been of that transition? So perhaps up front, just a quick disclaimer. Um, uh, as I arrived here, Jan shook my hand and uh, noted that I've crossed over to the dark side. <laughs> so I'm no longer the, the statutory actuary and the CRO, so you should probably update the slide and put non-CRO <laughs> as, my, as my designation. Then you're kind of in the same boat, Jan. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, in, in, in terms of internal, external, I think... I think um, Andy has covered it well. I mean, my own experience of actually trying to trying to play the role of stat act, um, CRO, hack, I think exceptionally difficult to do it um, from outside. Although, I mean, I guess there obviously um, are places where it would be appropriate, but particularly I think for a large organization where um, you really do need to get inside a whole lot of processes and meetings and God will talk to properly understand what's going on. I think that's really tough to do um, outside. Um, I mean, the whole discussion around the transition from static to hack, um, certainly when I took on the, the, the statutory actuary appointment, I found it um, quite intimidating. Um, actually, just contemplating the thoughts of um, some jail time if I got, uh, uh, got, got things wrong. And I found it a very, very difficult role to actually um, pinned down and properly understand. I mean, so I spent a lot of time in the legislation and the regs and the various guidance notes and all the rest and speaking to statutory actuaries. And the reality is that, from my experience, there was a lot of variability in terms of how people actually understood the role and how they, how they fulfilled it. Um, and uh, went through a process of actually kind of walking the road with our board and explaining to them how I understood it and what what I was going um, uh, to, what I was going to do, so that at least that stakeholder properly understood um, where I was, and I think the the transition to the hack. I mean, it's been a conversation over a number of years. Um, gives us greater clarity around what the let's call it the minimum requirements of the role are, because I mean, there's no doubt the hack role is narrower than the statutory actuary role. Um, it's better defined, um, and I think the way we need to engage with that. Um, as, as hacks going forwards is that that's a protection for us. I mean, it's easier to wrap your arms around what the minimum stuff is that you need to do um, and, and be held accountable for. And it's critical that we absolutely nail those responsibilities. Okay? But the, the risk to the way, um, say, the hack role is now defined is that you have actuaries kind of withdrawing and retreating into, into a more narrowly defined um, box. And I think that would be um, to the detriment of 
uh, us as, as individuals, professionals, us as a, as a profession and, and, and to the industry at large. I mean, so I think, I, 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 I don't think there's anything that prevents somebody fulfilling the duties of the hack from playing a much bigger, broader role. And at the end of the day, I mean, that's about how we, how we show up. Mm. I think we're still going to find uh, CEOs and FDs and boards looking for our input and guidance um, and, and, and direction. Um, and, and that doesn't mean to, need to be defined in the, in, the, in the legislation or the regulation for us to, to, to play that role. So, mm. Mm. so um, important that we kind of all keep that good old Frank Greddington quotes um, in mind around an actuary is only an actuary mm. is not an actuary. I mean, yeah. I, th I think we can, and, and, and you can see the, the, the hack role in a, in, a, in a similar light. So I think we can still play broader roles despite the fact that the rigs don't require us to. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very interesting observation. I think it's something that I have personally also grappled a little bit with. Um, you know, the, the short-term insurance industry is not, you know, doesn't have the same level of statutory actuary involvement that the life has. I mean, there are one or two short-term insurers who have statutory actuaries, but it, even in those instances, and I fulfilled some of those roles, it's a very loosely defined role. There's almost no real expectation of me to do anything. So, you know, that that is concerning. And then from that point of view, it's good to see that the role of the hack is being defined a lot more clearly. I know it's, you know, with the publishing of the governance standards, the, the FSB recently published uh, a series of releases of the governance standards, the GOI3. I think there was, I'm aware that there was a lot of discourse and input into what that role of the hack was. Um, and it's something that I'd be, I'd be keen to hear also the audience view on that, what they think, if it's practical, um, achievable. And perhaps with that, maybe I'd like to just open the mic to the audience. If there's anyone in the audience who would like to ask anything of our panelists, you can, you can direct your question at any one panelist or an entire panel if you so choose. Uh, but uh, do, I can't really see that well. Is there anyone here who might want to ask a question? Okay, so down there we have Sue from Hanover. Do we have a microphone? There it is. Okay. So, yeah, so, so I hear what you said about the jail time, Dave. I know Wayne likes to, uh, also you, I mean, you've got strong views on this as well, about the, the complete sort of responsibility that's been placed on the statutory actuary historically and just whether it actually makes sense or not. I know you've got some views on that, but uh, I'm certainly glad that the hack isn't a, a criminally jailable offence. All right, Sue. Okay. Sue Atkinson from Hanover Re. Um, I think you touched in the survey on the role of the Sarah designation. Now, I think it said something like 80% of people thought that was an adequate qualification for an actuary as a risk manager. My experience of ST9, and it's been a couple of years now, is that it covers an enormous breadth of material and as a result can't get into that much depth on all the topics. Um, I think we also know risk is a rapidly evolving landscape. Um, I think when I wrote this, and again not that long ago, cyber risk was a passing reference. Um, and we also know that our experience of risk management in Africa is quite different to the US or Europe or Asia. So do we feel that the CERA designation on its own is an adequate qualification for heading up risk, particularly at a large, complex um, group? Or is there a need for something like a practicing certificate regime to ensure CPD, continual development, adequate experience, and so on? Okay. 
That's it, yeah. Thank you, Sue. I think I would maybe want to ask Edward first to respond to this. Edward, I mean, you, you have... <laughs> um, so, Edward, I mean, I guess you've, you've seen the short-term insurance practicing certificate regime develop over the last years. Um, you're in the, the actuarial space, you're in the risk space. Uh, I don't know if you have any CROs who work for you in your team. What is, I mean, do, to my best of my knowledge, you're not a CRO, but do you feel that you would have been better equipped to be a CRO? And maybe to, to Sue's question, what, what is your view of it? Um, yeah, so I certainly tried writing it once. <laughs> um, oh dear. <laughs> um, ST9, that is. <laughs> Um, <laughs> didn't know that. So I, the bit of exposure that I have is I, I have the sort of dubious benefit of being invited to speak to the one day or two day CRO course every now and then and my topic is the a day in the life of a CRO. That didn't want to interest me in anything technical. <laughs> um, but I, I, do, I do start my talk with it's not about the copula and you know it touches on Jan's point as well, but to Sue's question, um, I think CIRA teaches you a broad um, foundation of the technical concepts and an introduction into the, the wide variety of frameworks that do exist, um, but like most of our education, it's the foundation. Um, thereafter, you know, the life skills and the life experience uh, progressively outweigh what you've learned uh, in academics. And um, so to the practicing certificate uh, question, my personal view is absolutely necessary. I think it's one place in the profession where we start to, as a profession, self-regulate in a way mm. and um, assist companies in understanding uh, when certain members have reached a certain yeah. level of uh, capability that they can actually advise yeah. at the highest level. So I do think that is the direction that we need to go, just having been on the uh, short-term passing certificate for a number yeah. of years. To my mind, that opens a very interesting question. So if you have an actuary in the CRO role and he has a practicing certificate and potentially some professional guidance that he's abiding by, does that mean he's being held to a different standard to someone who is in that role but not an actuary. I mean, yeah. So, so Jan, would you consider writing Sierra, given what Edward said? <laughs> I don't think I'll be allowed to write it. So <laughs> I won't pass through the door. Um, look, I mean, I, I can just um, agree with Edward. I think uh, it's good to have a foundation. Uh, but, you know, as the, the longer yeah. you go, it's, it's much more about the experience and uh, and some other skills that you've yeah. learned rather than, than, than just the, the education part. Yeah. And as you said at the beginning, I mean, there's specific character traits that you, you need and you just can't teach them through a subject. Are there perhaps any other questions from the audience? Here we a question. Um, on the previous slides, there was a comment about whether um, there are actuaries have certain skills to can perform CRO roles. A comment from my side is, I believe that the actuaries should have skills to can be migrated to whatever place of work needs be. I don't care if it's a mine, if it's a nuclear plant, whatever. The skills that actually we possess should make us to can take skills wherever we want. 
No, the issue is the kind of actuary that we produce. Now, do we actually produce flamboyant actuaries enough to can be able to can traverse how the corporate South Africa actually works? More often than not, you might find that actually, the actuary do and does have skills, but he can't, he can't maneuver the corporate South Africa, and as such, then we can come up with conclusions that no, actuaries don't have skill set to can do or perform certain roles. The skill sets are there, but it's just the persona or the character of the person that actually might be an impediment. Hmm. Thank you for that. Yes, I, I can understand. I, I mean, I'll try to go back on the slide. It doesn't want to work, but uh, you might be referring to one of the slides where there was a respondent comment that said the actuaries seem to be well suited to doing the complex calculations and the modeling, but they seem to lack the strategic and commercial insights. Is that, is that the slide you were talking Yes. I, I, I actually agree fully with you. I think, I think it's something that, you know, even in a consulting environment where you deal with uh, clients and business issues, that ability to actually take your technical knowledge um, but then apply it in a, in a different way, in a sort of a commercially savvy way or with business acumen is, is definitely a rare trait. And it, I don't know if it's something you can teach. It, to, to my mind, it comes a lot through experience getting the right exposure, the right mentorship in business. Um, yeah, can maybe just to add something to that because I can, I can comment and it's not just on the actuarial profession side. So as a chartered accountant, I'd, I'd, I'd echo those same words in terms of what I see as successful professionals versus those that have probably not reached the levels that they should have. And it's that inquiry in mind. Jan yeah. referred to the why, why, why. Um, you know, if you're willing to just accept things at face value or if you're willing to ground them on the frameworks that you've developed through your academic development, you're not going to challenge the status quo. You're not, you're not going to progress things. So I think it's, it's being able to contextualize the questions that are being asked. So to your point, if it's in a nuclear environment, if it's in a mining environment, if it's in financial services, understand the business, understand the questions that are being asked, understand the role that you can play in answering those. And I think the, the concern I have around professions is that they're often seen as technicians. Mm -hmm. So for the first four or five years, you're invariably doing a routine task that is highly complex yet repeatable. And you don't understand its relevance within the broader business. So what I would encourage people to do is either through class of programs or through rotational programs or through actually to the point you made, Yako, of getting mentors that are willing to give you broader exposure, seek that understand the questions or the challenges that your business face and try and get involved in that problem solving. I think professions are at the forefront of being capable of solving some of these challenges that businesses have yeah. and I think are very well grounded on an academic basis. I think of what I studied as a CA versus what the new CA study and I almost uh, cringe at how little sort of broader context we were given in our studies. I look at how well the actuaries are versed in terms of how you link your various modules together through your fellowship and through CIRA to the question that Sue asked. But if you can't apply that to the actual business, you're very quickly going to lose that capability. Thank you. Shall I open uh, one more question? We've got time for just one question. There we have one, right at the back there.
Hi, uh, it's Craig Falconer. Um, I just had a question. I read the latest uh, GRI 3, and I think it was 4, and just the hack has to be subject to peer review. I uh, just wanted the panel's um, view on whether that should be the case or not, and why, and whether it should be applied to the CRO as well. Interesting question. Thank you, Greg. Okay, uh, shall we maybe? Andy, do you want to start off? We're going to do a Mexican wave of answer, yeah? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, yeah, look, I think the hack role, to the extent it's around reserving and, and calculations, is covered by the external auditors already, I think. Um, the CRO role, I think it's really difficult to have a peer review uh, of that function because it's probably incredibly different across lots of different organizations. So it's going to be hard to codify. But anyway, short answer, Yako. I guess we're running out of time. So probably no. Okay. Edward, Dave? Uh, do you want to jump? Sorry. Uh, just a quick one. Yeah, so the risk function is already subject to an internal audit review. I've been subject to that already. It's not fun, but I do think it's necessary. Um, mm -hmm. As to the hack, depends on the context. Um, external hack versus internal hack, different dynamics. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same place. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, uh, push for peer review of either of these functions. I mean, the reality is that that if you look at all the checks and balances and controls and the roles played by internal audits, external audits, and then and then boards. I mean, boards. Mm. If, I mean, they, if they're uncomfortable with the way a particular roles um, being yeah. being played, they're going to take action. And they're going to go and do something about it. And, and in that instance, for example, get someone in to come and do an, an yeah. external peer review. So I, I don't think you need formalized across the piece uh, peer review. Okay. okay. Well, thank you for that. And yeah, thanks for that question, Craig. I guess with the industry having recently just actually sent in their formal feedback, we, I guess we must keep our eyes on what the next iteration of that standard looks like because I think this was version two and a half that we saw, so final version will be out hopefully fairly soon. We'll hope to see that addressed. Um, with that, I'd like to close off and just thank um, my panel members here for the, for the great discussions. I mean, we've been very fortunate to have such a, a prominent and uh, experienced panel here. I really appreciate uh, the time and effort that all of them put in to be here today and to take questions and put up with a room full of actuaries. Uh, we're really fortunate to have such a strong panel. So thank you very much, gentlemen, and uh, we look forward to seeing this role evolve. Thank you.